0: scripture passage this evening is Colossians 2, Colossians 2, verses 6 through 15, be found on page 1,252 in the Pew Bibles. We will also be reading from the Belgic Confession, article 34, found on page 190 in your Forms and Prayers book. Before we read from Colossians, let's ask for God's blessing on the reading and the preaching of his word. Father in heaven, as we turn to your word, we pray that you would do what we just sung before you, that you would speak to us, that we would hear, help us to hear the beauty of what it is to be alive in Christ and to receive signs that assure us of that life we have in him. We saw it in the Old Testament through circumcision, and we see it here through baptism, and we pray that we would be encouraged, encouraged all the more to glorify you, and brought once again through this sacrament to a knowledge of our Savior and of the gospel message. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Colossians 2, beginning in verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This ends the reading of... Colossians 2, a very full text, one that we certainly will not be able to delve into tonight in its richness, but we take from this text especially the, the continuity you see between circumcision and baptism. That's specifically what we want to see in Colossians, that we were circumcised in Christ, made without hands, as this text says, and we receive all of the meaning of what circumcision was through the baptism that we have Christ. And now we will read from the Belgic Article 34 a summary of what God's Word teaches us about baptism. It's helpful to read these articles to gain an understanding of the scriptural teaching on this. We couldn't speak, we couldn't read one text of baptism and say, there we have everything, everything we need to know about baptism is right there in a single text. It takes all of God's Word, it takes an interpretation of God's Word to explain what we believe about baptism. And that's what the Belgic does here for us. Article 34. We believe and confess that Jesus Christ, in whom the law is fulfilled, has by his shed blood put an end to every other shedding of blood, which anyone might do or wish to do in order to atone or satisfy for sins. Having abolished circumcision, which was done with blood, he established in its place the sacrament of baptism. By it we are received into God's church and set apart from all other people and alien religions that we may be dedicated entirely to him, bearing his mark and sign. It also witnesses to us that he will be our God forever, since he is our gracious Father. Therefore he has commanded that all those who belong to him be baptized with pure water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, In this way, he signifies to us that just as water washes away the dirt of the body when it is poured on us and also is seen on the body of the baptized when it is sprinkled on them, so too the blood of Christ does the same thing internally in the soul by the Holy Spirit. It washes and cleanses it from its sins and transforms us from being the children of wrath into the children of God. This does not happen by the physical water but by the sprinkling of the precious blood of the Son of God, who is our Red Sea, through which we must pass to escape the tyranny of Pharaoh, who is the devil, and to enter the spiritual land of Canaan. So ministers, as far as their work is concerned, give us the sacrament and what is visible, but our Lord gives what the sacrament signifies, namely the invisible gifts and graces, washing, purifying, and cleansing our souls of all filth, And unrighteousness, renewing our hearts and filling them with all comfort, giving us true assurance of his fatherly goodness, clothing us with the new man and stripping off the old with all its works. For this reason, we believe that anyone who aspires to reach eternal life ought to be baptized only once without ever repeating it, for we cannot be born twice. Yet this baptism is profitable not only when the water is on us and when we receive it, but throughout our entire lives. For that reason, we detest the error of the Anabaptists who are not content with a single baptism once received and also condemn the baptism of the children of believers. We believe our children ought to be baptized and sealed with the sign of the covenant as little children were circumcised in Israel on the basis of the same promises made to our children. And truly, Christ has shed his blood no less for washing the little children of believers than he did for adults. Therefore, they ought to receive the sign and sacrament of what Christ has done for them, just as the Lord commanded in the law that by offering a lamb for them, the sacrament of the suffering and death of Christ would be granted them shortly after their birth. This was the sacrament of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, baptism does for our children what circumcision did for the Jewish people. That is why Paul calls baptism the circumcision of Christ. We've all experienced news of someone's engagement. We've all experienced that time where we go up and say congratulations, and then you generally move from that congratulations and well wishes to a question. Normally, that question is, how did he propose? How was it done? Now, of course, there are those among us who get a little more excited about this than others. Some, some of us don't really ask that question. Some of us don't care. Some of us live for the stories and want every little detail. And it is those little details about the, the proposal that do make it special, and the more detail is given and the more thought that went into it, these, that, that, that story becomes that much greater. And you see, oh, that's so amazing. And, 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 and the detail is very specific. Oh, he placed 12 roses and sprinkled the petals here or, or did whatever. I don't want to give ideas to anyone who might, be, who might be thinking of that. I'm going to keep them for my own usage of, of, of romantic, romantic gifts. But that's the way we get the details. We want the details. Want the details of this proposal, and in the same way, the details of baptism—the particulars are what give it its great beauty. As you see, as we read this article, there is so much there. Now we get really excited to talk about engagements and proposals, and we're very, very familiar with that question: How did he propose? What did he do? I'm, I'm guessing we're not familiar with the question. So tell me the story of your baptism. That strikes us as odd. And it likely strikes us as odd because for many of us, perhaps most of us, it was while we were infants and we don't remember it. Probably also strikes us as odd because we all might have the exact same story. The details might not vary that much, but I would argue, and in fact, this isn't much of an argument, this is the truth. The story of our baptism is is far more significant. Far more rich and beautiful than even as beautiful a story as a proposal might be, as beautiful as a marriage might be. Our baptism. What is meant there? You see, to tell the story of the proposal is to see the glowing face of the bride-to-be recounting this great affection that her fiancé showed to her publicly declaring by placing that ring that I promise something to you. A lot of ties there into what baptism itself means. For baptism is that public declaration of God himself that this is one who I love. This is one who's part of my covenant. One who I bestow all these promises on. You see, to tell the story of a proposal is rich, but to tell the story of baptism is far richer. Tell the story of baptism, if we were to be asked, "Hey, tell me the story of your baptism it 's to tell the story of an exodus through waters, of a redemption of a people from a crazed, scary, lunatic pharaoh who had the might of an empire behind his hands, and yet we were received and brought through the waters of the Red Sea. to tell the story of baptism is to tell of a man of a God who became a man and took to himself a flesh. One who was hung on a cross for the sake of his bride and died and spilled all of his blood for the very bride he was taking to himself. To tell the story of baptism is to tell of a tomb and of a body laid in that tomb. To tell the story of baptism is of that tomb emptying of a resurrection and an ascension. To tell the story of baptism is to tell the story of being taken to that place with him in heaven reigning with him. To tell the story of baptism is to tell the story of the gospel, redemptive history, and of a love far greater than any we would ever know or ever could know. That's what I want us to see here today before we even dive into the particulars of baptism. There are many particulars, and as we look at those, I want us to see it like those details in an engagement story, and a proposal story. Those details add that flair, they add that love. It wasn't just he, he got down on one knee and asked me a question. No, there was, there was thought involved. Well, when we see the details of baptism and all that Christ has done and all that the Father elected to do here, we see of that same love bestowed upon his people Today we're going to look at this article under four points. First, baptism's continuity. Second, baptism's sign. Third, baptism's invisible gifts and graces. And fourth, a rejection of errors, something that baptism is not. First, baptism's continuity. And what I mean by continuity here is the continuity it has with circumcision. We read this from Colossians. We see it in the Belgic that baptism replaces circumcision, which is abolished. And as the Belgic starts, we see that we're purchased in Christ's blood, but we also see that the, the rights of blood have been done away with. Circumcision was that bloody right given to the infants, the male infants, where there was a sign of cutting off. Now, circumcision conveyed the same meaning of baptism, but it did it in a way that showed a cutting off of sin, that showed it in a bloody rite and ritual, which is no longer appropriate for those who live after all the blood has been shed after the mark of sin and being cut off has already been performed, and so circumcision is no longer appropriate. Circumcision can't be the sign that inaugurates and brings one into the covenant community. It must be something else, and that's the continuity of the covenant of grace. We have one covenant, one covenant people, who have been brought in the same way and saved the same way from the oldest of days, from Adam and Eve till now. Now, the particulars, the details, the ceremonies have changed, but the meaning has not. And the promises of God have not changed. So what once required blood and cutting off has changed here. We see this in the Belgic. It says, By baptism we are received into God's church and set apart from all other people and alien religions. And then, just notice the beauty here. That we may be dedicated entirely to him. Bearing his mark and sign. It also witnesses to us that he will be our God forever since he is our gracious Father. I want to bring to mind again that proposal, that engagement ring, because what often do we do? I, I, I sort of skipped a step because before the question of tell us the story usually comes, let me see your hand. And the bride to be is so excited to show what is on her finger. A mark and a sign of that love. And that's what we see here in baptism. It's a declaration. It, it, it's that we're de- dedicated entirely to God, that we bear His mark and sign. That ring on someone's hand serves that purpose. It declares to everyone this person is spoken for, this person is married or promised to be married, they belong to someone else. And that's what baptism is. A sign that we belong to God, we don't belong to the world. We're spoken for, dedicated entirely to Him. That He will be our God forever, since He is our gracious Father. This is what He would have bear witness. Baptism contains all the meaning of circumcision. You see, circumcision did that, and it did that to the representatives of the Israelite households, the men. And they were marked in such a way that it was irreversible, that this mark was showing they belonged to another That they were dedicated wholly to to, to their God. Given that mark and sign of being brought into the covenant people. And with that giving of the sign, they were declared to be God's people. Recipients of the covenant. Who would be nurtured and grow in that covenant. They weren't saved by the circumcision. The circumcision needed to be accompanied with a profession of faith. But they were nevertheless given that sign, placed inside the covenant. And brought to, to grow in that understanding. So it's very important to maintain the continuity of the sign of the covenant inclusion from circumcision to baptism. Baptism is far more rich when we see it as a replacement to circumcision and not something new. You see, our baptism is in the line of what all of our forefathers received. They just received a different sign. Fundamentally speaking, all that circumcision conveyed, so does baptism. To view circumcision exclusively as an external and national right done away in Israel is a failure to understand covenant theology, a failure to understand what God has done in electing and saving a people. This is clearly taught in Romans 4, Galatians 3, as well as our text in Colossians 2, where we were, as it says, circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, meaning our circumcision wasn't physical, but we were circumcised in Christ. We experienced all that Christ did. He, has, he was circumcised. It was very intentional that the Bible proclaims that in Luke's Gospel and elsewhere, that Christ received the sign of circumcision. We were circumcised in him because we were baptized into him. Because we were brought into the covenant. All the spiritual promises given to Abraham and his seed belong to his, his seed, his covenant people. And they and their children are counted by God as his own, and thus deserving, not for a worth of themselves, but as a mark of their standing in the covenant, they should be given that mark of the covenant. That is those who should be baptized. So that's the continuity, and it's important to see the continuity of circumcision to baptism, where circumcision is no longer appropriate, but it hasn't been utterly abolished, meaning that baptism is something entirely new. Has no continuity. No, there's continuity there. Second, our second point, baptism sign. So, what does baptism mean? What's the sign of it? Look at the Belgic. It says this In this way, he signifies to us that just as water washes away the dirt of the body when it is poured on us, and also is seen on the body of the baptized when it is sprinkled on him, so too the blood of Christ does the same thing internally in the soul by the Holy Spirit. It washes and cleanses it from its sins and transforms us from being the children of wrath into the children of God. The basic clear sign of baptism is cleansing. The basic clear sign of baptism is cleansing. But there's something deeper, something more fundamental. It isn't the water that cleanses. What does the cleansing? Well, it's the blood of Christ. How does the blood of Christ be sprinkled on us and cleanse us? Well, it's in union with Him. So though cleansing might be the most basic explanation for what baptism signs and signifies to us, what's most fundamental about baptism is that it is a covenant sign of inauguration, a covenant sign of union with Christ. That's at the deepest meaning of baptism, union with Christ. For it is in that union with, that there is cleansing. This is why the Belgic brings up a beautiful tie into the Red Sea. You see, the people of Israel were saved in their own Red Sea moment by being baptized into the name of Moses, by being brought into the name of Moses, their mediator, who God sent as their deliverer. It was through Moses and God working even through him that the people were led through the Red Sea. That Red Sea serves waters that are they waters of cleansing or judgment, Well, they're both. Their waters that pictured the judgment on Egypt and Pharaoh as, as the army was washed away in the floods of the Red Sea, but it was a picture of being cleansed and brought through what was a judgment and death to some, where they were passed through in another, in Moses, where they reached the other side. And they could no longer be those slaves of Egypt. That was done as soon as they reached the, shor- the other end of the Red Sea, the opposite shores. They're no longer the slaves of Pharaoh, They're a new person. They're the people of God. That is our baptism. We walk through the waters of the Red Sea, people of God. It is through the baptismal font. It is through those waters. But we don't walk through with Moses. We walk through with Christ. Being saved a greater judgment from a greater foe. Union with him. So fundamentally, what's being signified is cleansing. Yes, but a union with Christ. That's the richness of baptism and and the deepest meaning. What happens uniquely in baptism? What happens to us uniquely? In baptism we can say, I am publicly identified as a Christian belonging to Jesus Christ. Publicly identified as belonging to Jesus Christ. Again, that engagement ring is placed on our fingers. We belong to someone else. We're spoken for. We can say, I become a member of the covenant community. We're brought not in isolation, but into a covenant. Now we belong to the covenant community, the church. We're subject to its its discipline, to its discipleship. We're subject as a participant in its struggles and sufferings. We're also heirs to its blessings. We're brought into a family. That's what baptism does as well. We're now part of that family with that sign placed upon us. We can say in baptism that I am given a new identity into which I am called to grow. We're a new person. We have a new identity. And that's why we need to think of ourselves first as baptized individuals, baptized Christians. We've lost that language. The language in the Bible is full of baptismal Imagery and wording that we're washed that we've been saved and cleansed that we've been sprinkled that there's all of these ways of describing it that we've lost in the church and need to bring it back we are baptized Christians spoken for and it's, it's just as, as, in one sense, as simple of an imagery as that engagement ring. If someone were to ask you, are you seeing anyone? You can just, just raise your hand and there's that ring. You can just show the sign. It's fundamental now to your identity. That's what baptism is as well. And so we are newly, we, we have a new identity in baptism. And we also can say in baptism, I am promised enormous grace and power to be received by faith. We stand as heirs. We think of heirs to a profound estate that has been given to us and to our name that will be received by faith. All of that blessing, the heir, the heir of everything that Christ has, has, God, has achieved for his people, received by faith. Belgic makes it clear that all this doesn't happen by the physical water alone. It isn't that water that is just ordinary water that, that, that does this. It's rather the sprinkling of the precious blood of the Son of God. And this is a crucial understanding. It's crucial to understand how wonderfully the Belgic does this. The Belgic does not make an automatic link between receiving the sign and the thing signified, but it clearly identifies the two and distinguishes them. It doesn't make that clear link, but it doesn't separate them either, because in that sign of ordinary water is conveyed spiritually the very reality that's being signified. Conveyed in the physical sign of water is the sprinkled blood of Christ to be received by faith through the very means of that water, of that baptism. Received spiritually by that means, but it is through faith and the Holy Spirit's work. is isn't the physical water, but God has used it and has ordained to use that as a means to give to his people that grace and that strength. And to convey union with Christ even through that. And so we don't separate the sign from the things signified, but we don't equate them either. Sacramental union, when we speak of a sacramental union, what we're talking about is when the sign and the things signified come together, where the truth is, is achieved. The sacramental union isn't achieved just by that physical water, as the Roman Catholic Church teaches. It's not... It's not physical, it's not local, as the Lutheran Church would say, that this grace is administered when the water is, because it's contained in, with, and under the water. That's not what we say either. The sacramental union is a spiritual union given and received in our faith. That's the sign of baptism. That's what it's signifying. And now our third point: baptism's invisible gifts and graces. What is the thing signified? We've already talked about this will read it. The Belgic says, So ministers, as far as their work is concerned, give us the sacrament and what is visible. But our Lord gives what the sacrament signifies, namely the invisible gifts and graces. What are they? What are the invisible gifts and graces that we receive even in baptism itself, washing, purifying, and cleansing our souls of all filth and unrighteousness? renewing our hearts and filling them with all comfort, giving us true assurance of his fatherly goodness, clothing us with the new man and stripping off the old with all its works. This is what comes. This is the thing signified, the spiritual reality. And the Belgic says, yet this baptism is profitable, not only when the water is on us, but when we receive it, but, and when we receive it, but throughout our entire lives. Throughout our entire lives, baptism is profitable for us. Is it not profitable to hear this now and to know you received the same sign? Is it not profitable using our illustration to look down on your own hand and see that ring? Now obviously we don't have that ring physically. We have a baptism. We have a sign of it. It was placed upon us just as strongly, just as real as an engagement ring. That's what we bear in the sign itself, and it it's profitable for you to remember that is it's profitable for you to know that you are the heir of all that Christ won and have received it. And it's profitable for your own assurance to trust that God will fully bring about even what He's already begun in you. Through even your baptism, He has worked this. That's the, the great blessing of baptism. All these gifts come to us through Christ because the sacraments present Christ. That's what they do, and they're received by faith. But God uses even the sacrament of baptism as a means to convey that reality. Unfortunately, many of us don't get this, and I, and I do want to make sure we understand that. We, we believe that there is spiritual nourishment and that there is a spiritual reality conveyed even in the doing of the sacraments. That it's there, and that's there to be received by faith. That there is a strengthening. And this is what our confessions say. The classic confessions of the Reformed Church speak about this. They speak about the Spirit conveying grace in connection with baptism, even while strenuously opposing the idea of Rome that it can just be so tied to it that all needs to be done is the administration of the sacrament, and you received what signified. No, the sacrament is received in faith. The grace of God accompanies accompanies it according to the external sign, and that external sign is employed by the Holy Spirit to communicate divine grace. Kelvin says about it, Yet it is not my intention to weaken the force of baptism by not joining reality and truth to the sign, insofar as God works through outward means. But from this sacrament, as from all others, we obtain only as much as we receive by faith. What Kelvin is saying is that there is the truth, Attached to the means, but only received in faith. That's what's displayed in baptism and it's conferred and actually given there. Of course, not all who are baptized will be saved. Saving faith is necessary, and at Pentecost, when Peter, alongside requiring baptism, he demanded repentance as well. Of course, repentance is required. With that being said, the grace of union with Christ is signified, sealed, and exhibited in baptism. It's conferred by the Holy Spirit. This is due to the Spirit alone, yet it occurs not independently of baptism, but rather in and through it. It's hard speaking about sacraments because you've got to be precise. You've got to be careful and, and, and be clear on what you mean and what you don't mean, what the sign does and what it doesn't do. But this is the details of our engagement brothers and sisters. This is that story we want to tell. The depth of all that Christ has done. That we see, we receive it, that the, the Holy Spirit promises and even through baptism, we are blessed. Baptism promises what faith receives. That's the invisible gifts and grace we receive in the sign itself. And our last point, a rejection of errors. Briefly, briefly we're going to talk about What baptism doesn't mean. This is related to two issues. The Belgic is dealing with one without naming it. One was an ancient church heresy that said the efficacy or effectiveness of baptism was tied to the one who administered it. What if the pastor, what if at that time the bishop or priest or whoever was administering the sacrament, what if he later apostatized? What if he walked away from the faith and rejected it? Did that undermine? Did that prove your baptism was legitimate? And there were those teaching that. That's why the Belgic says, for this reason we believe anyone who aspires to reach eternal life ought to be baptized only once. That's why it talks about as far as the minister is concerned, the minister gives just what's physical. It isn't by any power that the minister has or possesses. It's spiritual in power and spiritually conveyed. That is why the, the righteousness, the personal righteousness of the one administering the sacraments does not matter to the sacrament itself as it's received spiritually. And so the Belgic is speaking against that error, those who would reject a meaning of baptism because of someone who was not upright in its administering it. But it also talks about two baptisms, talks about the Anabaptists and says that we reject the error of the Anabaptists who are not content with a single baptism once received. Why are we, and we should be, by the way, and I've, I've heard of this happening, where those who have been baptized, grew up in a Reformed church, leave and go away and attend some other church, and maybe it's a Baptist church, maybe it's a place that doesn't recognize infant baptism, and they're asked to be baptized again. I've heard of those who grow up in, in Reformed churches who then think, well, what's the big deal, why not? It's a grievous error. Why is it a grievous error? Because part of the meaning of it is that it is given once. Part of the meaning there is that it is from God. It's the promise He gives, and He doesn't give two promises. One is all that is sufficient. One sign brings you into God's people. And to receive the sign again, what does that mean? Does it mean you were not part of God's people before? No, you were. You were baptized, and that's the point. You were given those signs. You were baptized. You were brought into the people of God. You can't have that again. Use that illustration. What does a second proposal do when the one is already in place? Oh, nothing. Right? Now, maybe we do it joking around with our fiancé, but if you were to get on your knee again and propose and say, will you marry me, it would be, this has been settled. The ring's on my finger. Yes, of course. It's in place. That's why we reject two baptisms. That it, it destroys the beauty of all that is given in baptism itself also misunderstands what it is baptism is not what we're coming to do it's what god has done for us he's done it once when it is given in the name of the trinity by an official of the church when it is done when it is given in that way it's 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 a true baptism <coughs> given by the name of God. And so we reject two baptisms. That's the first error. The second error is adult baptism only. And the Belgic references this as those who deny the baptism given to the children of believers. We're going to go through this quickly. We cover this in other places in the hybrid catechism as well. I just want to say primarily two things. First, this should be the determinative question in connection with infant baptism. Are the children of believers to be regarded as belonging to God and his church? Or may we, in light of what the Bible has to say about them and their position, consider them outsiders? Are our children, represented in God's word, to be considered a part of the people of God, or are they to be considered as outsiders? That's what we need to to ask first of all. Do our children have that promise that we have? And we believe without hesitation, of course, yes. Because God operates according to a covenant community, according to his people, giving the promise that he gave to the Father, to the sons and daughters, and to their sons and daughters, down through the line of generations. This is very helpful when thinking about infant baptism. As one theologian said, if infants were debarred from the covenant sign in the New Testament, After receiving it in the Old Testament, Pentecost would have been the greatest occasion of mass excommunication in history. If it is true that circumcision used to bring the children of believers into the covenant, and they were seen, and and heirs of the covenant itself only to have the day of Pentecost arrive and there's baptism that takes its place, and then they're no longer part of the covenant community, that's what this author is saying. That, that would be the greatest example of church excommunication ever. To cut off all those children and the promises given to them, that's, that's not the way the children of believers should be baptized. Children are addressed in the New Testament not with a command to repent in terms of their covenantal responsibilities. We are all told to confess sins and repent, but children of believers are not spoken to and told to repent like they are those who are outsiders. They are spoken to like they are those who should be nurtured, who have faith and should grow in that faith. In Ephesians and Colossians, we see both address. We see... Elements of the covenant community addressed. Paul turns to groups. He talks to husbands and wives, masters and slaves, all of those in the covenant community, parents and, yes, children, teaching them of their responsibilities, of the law that they are required to obey, of the promises given to them by God, of the faith that they themselves are heirs of by what right? By the baptism that was placed on their heads, making them those heirs, giving to us that assurance. So, in conclusion, how do we summarize all that's been said? Well, through all of these details, do we not see the beauty of our story, of the story of love of our Father who has given to us this sign, promised to us all these realities? What a blessing! It's profitable for us to contemplate, to think of. As surely as the water was on your head, so surely are you an heir of the covenant, part of God's people, bearing the mark of his love and care. And all that truth is to be received in faith, and thus we see the effectiveness of baptism. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father in Heaven, we thank you for the great gift of knowing you and knowing you through you first coming to know us. You are the one who acts. You are the one who seeks. We do not seek you, and we see that even in our covenant community where you place the sign of the covenant on us and on our children's heads. We praise you for that great truth, and we thank you that we are spiritually nourished, through baptism and that it is profitable for us even now as we think of baptisms that were so many years ago. So many years ago promises were given and the Holy Spirit conveyed the reality at a time of his choosing. We praise you for that great truth and glorify